Okay, thank you all for uh, thank you all for coming. How's Pain Week going so far? Pretty good, huh? Another great year. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll, uh, I'll certainly second that. Uh, show of hands, how many people attended this lecture last year? Same topic last year. Not too many. That's great. Well, I had a lot of requests to change it up a little bit, so I'll tell you what was old and what was new. I left all the old stuff in, and then I added some. Everybody said, "How come you have nothing on device?" And how come you're not talking anything about behavioral or cognitive stuff? So I threw a couple of, uh, couple of little slides and sections into, uh, into the talk. Uh, this happens to be a passion of mine, and if you're on the front lines of practicing pain, it has to be a passion of yours because, frankly, it's getting old, or should I say the medicines we've been using are getting old, right? There's a lot of baggage associated with the analgesics that we use on a day-to-day uh, <clears throat> -day basis. Um, I'm doing a couple of talks here this week. For those of you I haven't met, I think I've been at almost every pain week, save one five years ago today when my twins were born. Uh, so I missed their first day of kindergarten today and uh, missed the birthday, but uh, uh, FaceTimed at least three or four times uh, already today. I practice out of a hospital in northern New Jersey, used to be one of the Mount Sinai affiliates. We've given up that affiliation in anticipation of Seton Hall has just built a new medical school. We're going to be a teaching uh, affiliate for uh, for the Seton Hall, uh, for the Seton Hall Medical School, uh, been there almost 20 years as director of uh, pain management. About 12 years ago, I went to the hospital administration. I said, "We have to have a palliative care team," and they said, "Great, you're it." So I became director of pain and palliative care. Uh, I do inpatient and outpatient. I am very active in the consulting world and the publishing world. Uh, so many of the things you see here today, uh, including products, which I'll try not to mention by name, I've either consulted for the company, written about it. There are some members I see in the audience here whose products may be represented. This is going to be hopefully a relatively unbiased review of what's on the landscape. What are the table of contents of all the journals that I get from science and nature and, and all of our analgesic journals tell us is coming uh, for, uh, for the future? And can we replace what we know of as, uh, as typical opioids? One more little plug that I'll give. My evil twin, Jeff Fudin, not Jeff Gooden, that's me, but Jeff Fudin is in the back, and he and I have been granted the honor of being the co-editor-in-chiefs of a journal called Practical Pain Management. Uh, many of you probably receive it. It's free. It's a free subscription. Uh, it's one of those journals that uh, it helps you keep up with the times. And Jeff and I have decided that we want to kind of step up the journal a little bit. So we had these cards made. A lot of you always come up and say, hey, how can I publish? How can I write? Hey, I have this great case report. You're not going to believe this. Well, we want to invite you guys. So he and I had like 500 of these cards printed up, which basically says your name, your email, a suggested topic that you'd like to see in the journal, and a little checkbox whether you could write or help write on that topic. So see either Jeff or I or the Practical Pain Management booth. We are going to try to get every residency program, every pain fellowship program, we are going to try to get them engaged. We want to collect great case reports. Uh, I think it was Jeff was just telling me about a case of somebody that was using oral morphine, uh, had an oral swab done for urine drug screening, and was also on an aspirin product. And the aspirin acetylated the morphine, so they got monoacetylmorphine back on the swab, which is heroin in a lady who wasn't using heroin, right? Now tell me that's not the coolest thing ever, 
right? It's not so cool for the lady who got kicked out of the practice, obviously, who wasn't a heroin user. Uh, but it's kind of stuff like that that I think I'd want to read about. I found it really fascinating, and I think we could get little blurbs in the journal. We plan on having a section of the journal that will relate to some of this, analgesics of the future. We plan on having a little section of the journal of uh, just launch for products that get approval, like one of the products you heard about for opioid withdrawal just here at this meeting uh, today or today or yesterday. Okay, so uh, no ground rules for the talk other than I have too many slides that we could possibly go through. I just want to kind of at 100 miles an hour give you an idea of what's on the landscape and what have we been through to get to, to, get to this point. Sorry. If you were to ask me what one of the major challenges with opioids were, I think I would list partial efficacy as a big problem. Because you get a little bit of relief, not enough relief, and you all know what I'm talking about from those patients who just want to continually escalate their dose. And I guess if you or I were really suffering and we took a medicine that gave us a little relief, we'd want to take more of that medicine. So partial efficacy is certainly a challenge with our current analgesic therapies. And that led us in the last 20 or 30 years to develop this concept of multimodal analgesia. Let's use different drugs with different mechanisms of action to try to target this one big problem from multiple standpoints. The other big problem is that we have an AE profile that's unacceptable, bothersome. I did the talk on constipation this morning. I'm doing a talk on constipation tomorrow. I think I have a talk on constipation on Friday. I've done talks on constipation in 16 countries around the world. My mom always says, where are you going this time? And I tell her, she's like, that sounds great. What are you talking on? I'm like, guess. She's like, constipation again? Well, it's a big problem. And we have other uh, bothersome profiles, but really what makes the front page are the dangerous side effects of, of opioids, namely respiratory depression, leading to, uh, leading to death. Pain is certainly complex. The pathophysiology, I learn more and more each and every day, more and more novel molecular targets, ion channels. I'll review some of those with you here, uh, here today. And let's face it, lack of potential cure, right? You know, our treatment really focuses on management, not preventing or, or coping. Anybody go to Beth Darnell's talk? Is Beth in the audience by any chance? I don't imagine. Anybody go to Beth's talk yesterday on catastrophizing it? Unbelievable, right? How just the way patients think affects what they feel. And I think I put a slide in just this afternoon on that. Amazing. Somatosensory changes based on catastrophizing. God, life is so terrible. My pain is so bad. I'm never going to get over it. I can't work. My kids don't like me, right? You catastrophize, and it changes your quantitative sensory perception. Unbelievable. How many of us don't incorporate any behavioral therapies into it? And that's why I changed the talk, and I, and I applaud those of you who said to me, hey, you need more of this in there. Just the way we think affects the way we perceive, the way we perceive pain. Um, this is historically Tylenol, NSAIDs, tramadol, tapentadol, opioids, and then if you have some neuropathy, gabapentinoids, SSRI topicals, local anesthetics. This has been what we do each and every day in practice. Juggle between these modalities. If you're an interventionalist, sure, nerve blocks and spinal cord stims and those kind of things, which are not without their morbidities and, and mortalities. Um, I went to an unbelievable it, it was an advisory board, but it had a neurosurgeon, a neurologist, a physiatrist, a psychiatrist, all focused on pain. It was amazing to hear when you went around the room the different treatment approaches that each one of these specialists took towards pain. 
you could see why, I mean, pain is very complex, but you could see why we haven't unified really in our, uh, in our treatment. This is really where the gold is in treating pain, right? You've heard about this thing that, that many of the, the experts call the sensitizing soup. All of these inflammatory mediators, serotonin, bradykine, and hydrogen ions. We're going to talk a little bit about NGF. Hopefully you all know at this point that we have nerve growth factor inhibitors coming very quickly, coming soon. They're even, if you read the lay press, they're, they're, in, the, uh, they're in the media. Uh, interleukins are, are, uh, play a very large role in, the pain pro- in pain processing. I'll tell you, I trained in uh, New Haven. One of my mentors, Lloyd Sabersky, always used to say, pain is an immunological phenomenon. And he was a little crazy, sorry if anybody of you know, but a great guy, brilliant, right? Uh, just a little crazy with his line of thought, but he's right. All, whether it's nociceptive or neuropathic, it all has this inflammatory component, this inflammatory uh, background. If we have time, I'm going to talk a little bit about glial cell modulation. Show of hands, anybody ever see uh, Linda Watkins talk, University of Colorado, on glial cell modulation? I'll tell you a little bit about what she talks about, how in laboratory animals they're able to not only disrupt but completely eliminate neuropathic pain by using these, a variety of glial cell, uh, glial cell modulators. So a lot of um, complexity to understanding. And this is just the periphery, by the way. You all remember what happens in the CNS, right? You have a combination of excitatory uh, pathways and inhibitory pathways. And the brain is a balance between excitation and inhibition. We see with brain and spinal cord injuries, if the excitatory pathways went over, right, you're spastic. If the inhibitory pathways went over, you're, you're spastic, uh, you're, you're uh, flaccid. Um, so we know that there's modulators uh, in the CNS that play a big role. Now, back when I was an anesthesia resident 25 years ago or so, they were working on substance P inhibitors. And this would have been the topic of my talk back then. Could you imagine substance P is this pain chemical in the body? We know the more of it you have, the more pain you're going to feel. They're working on a substance P inhibitor. They found it. Guess what? Didn't work, right? Just to show you what we think is responsible for pain in laboratory and animal models, we don't really, uh, it doesn't always translate into, uh, into, into, uh, in, into drugs that actually work for pain. Glutamate is an excitatory media, uh, amino acid, prostaglandins, NMDA receptor you all know about. And once you activate this cascade in the spinal cord and you get this central sensitization windup, almost impossible to turn off. Hence, for my anesthesia colleagues in the room, if you believe it, the concept of preemptive analgesia. Treat pain early or, or prevent pain to block some of this, some of this wind-up receptors, uh, some of this wind-up phenomenon. Fortunately, when we have an injury and acute pain, 97 98% of the time we go on to normal healing. But why is it that some patients develop these neuroplastic symptoms that we call hyperalgesia, an exaggerated response to pain, and allodynia, sensitivity to light touch. And I ask all patients about these, about these symptoms. Um, listening to Beth yesterday and seeing some of the data about how just based on your pain personality, just based on your catastrophizing, you could have more sensitivity, more allodynia, more hyperalgesia. It's amazing that it's probably not just a spinal phenomenon, which we've talked about forever. It's probably more of a CNS phenomenon where stress and anxiety and schizophrenia and PTSD and, and, and 
psychological issues play a role in healing for chronic pain. This to me really drives home the importance of having a multidisciplinary pain center. There's some data looked at, I think it's from a year or two ago, showing how we started, you know, we were in the lead from a pain treatment standpoint for decades, and now we're like 20th in the world. Like you go around the world and they have these truly multidisciplinary treatment centers. But our economic model, our reimbursement model, doesn't support that here, that, that, kind of, uh, that kind of therapy. So I just put in this slide on here are some alternative treatments for pain. I am a medical acupuncturist. Any other acupuncturists in the room? A couple of hands. Does it work? Yes, 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 yes. When I was taking the course, I thought to myself, there is no way this is going to work. There is no science here. My kidney is not over here. My liver is not over here. It just doesn't make any sense at all. I have patients who come back month after month after month. I have one guy, swear to God, has terrible neuropathy in his feet. He was a chemist and worked probably with chemicals that he shouldn't have. And I do some ear acupuncture on him. And every time I put the needle in his ear, he goes, oh, oh, duck, oh. That, and I look at him, right? And I wonder what everybody's thinking on the outside. He's like... <laughs> I feel that in my toe, right? And this is a sane guy. He's a, he's a professional. So there's something to these electrical meridians in the body that we don't yet understand. So don't rule out complementary therapies for, uh, for patients, especially uh, uh, some of these cognitive behavioral things. All right, here's one of the studies that I, that I put in. I don't remember if this one is Beth's or another one, but it showed that how catastrophizing really undermines chronic pain treatment, that unless we fix that component, I know we're supposed to be talking about analgesics, but this is cool. Unless we fix the catastrophizing component, we're not going to be able to affect the outcomes. That's what we're most, that we're, that's what we're most uh, uh, concerned with. And they looked at quantitative, uh, quantitative sensory testing, and it showed that catastrophizing appeared to induce changes in two of these sensory tests. Sensation is a physiological response. Just by changing the way they think, we can turn down pain processing, right? They showed that catastrophizing amplified pain processing. To me, I just find that, find that remarkable. So this one is, uh, this one is Beth said, look, most people aren't going to go for 12 weeks of structured cognitive behavioral therapy. What if we come up with a single session CBT that people could do? And her data, at least the preliminary data, shows that a single session might be able to make changes in the way people perceive their pain. So when you leave here today, from this point on, we're only going to talk about molecules and analgesics and cool stuff, but don't forget about the cognitive behavioral uh, component of pain. All right. So back when I trained, we learned about this uh, principle of balance in pain and addiction medicine, and the scales used to be equal, but I can tell you now, and you all know that uh, we're very heavily weighted down. I see two, three, four of you in the audience, and I could probably name 10 other of my colleagues from around the country who, and I will quote, I spend the majority of my days tapering stable patients off of opioids. And I see a lot of heads in the room shaking yes. I spend the majority of my days tapering stable patients off their opioids. Incredible. Imagine if I was a cardiologist here and I said, you know, I've been spending the majority of my time tapering my stable patients off their statins, <laughs> right? Or tapering my diabetics off their insulin. It makes no sense. We're in an irrational time. I talked to Jeff just this morning. One of the headlines I was going to put in practical pain management is, the prescription opioid crisis is over. 
When you look at the data, anybody see this last week in the newspaper? 88 or 89% of opioid-related deaths in Massachusetts were what kind of deaths? Heroin, fentanyl, were fentanyl deaths, which to me is, as an anesthesiologist, just amazing how it's just pervaded the streets. Right? That tells me that we're doing a better job and the landscape has shifted with the patterns of drug abuse that we're seeing. Is drug abuse still out there? Yes. Are opioid deaths still happening? Yes. But take the target off of us. We shouldn't be tapering stable patients, especially those without risk factors. But because somebody came up with an arbitrary MME, whether you metabolize it the same way or I doesn't matter, most of the academic pain centers now are tapering patients off. Anybody see the proposed Oregon rule? No more opioids for chronic pain. Who needs them? Is there any rationale to that? It's just so ludicrous, it's, it's hard to believe, but this concept of opiophobia. So I don't need to show you, the, uh, show you the guidelines, show you how far some towns have gone to figure out where the opioid problems are worst. This North Carolina town is testing the sewage system, looking for amounts of opioids in the poop to show which neighborhoods have the worst opioid problems. Is that unbelievable? I mean, we've just gone a little bit, a little bit too far. Uh, for those of you here at Pain Week last year, Sreen Alamachu and I put together with a lot of help this uh, review of opioid studies in the literature, 70 studies, 19,000 patients, to look at is there any benefit to opioid therapy long term? Now, if you talk to representatives at the FDA, or if you remember there was a New England Journal article that said there's no evidence for the long-term effectiveness of opioids for greater than one year. Now think about it. Who is going to enroll in a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled pain study for one year or longer? First of all, nobody would enroll. It probably wouldn't be ethical. Patients would drop out like crazy, right? And there's no, the FDA says if you want to get approval for an opioid, you need to do 12-week studies, three-month studies. So they're right. The opponents who are saying we have no long-term data greater than a year, they're kind of right. But nobody ever required us to do that, and it would be almost impossible to do. You know what I say? Come spend a day in my pain center. Meet the patients who try to taper, and their pain is terrible, but they're on a stable daily dose of opioid, and they're doing well, whatever that MME number might, might be. So we went back and looked at the opioid trials that were done that have these things called open-label extension periods. So the efficacy portion of the trial is only three months, but we leave patients on drug for six months or a year to study safety, and we also say, hey, by the way, how's your pain doing? Now, the opponents will say, well, look, you enriched that population, and the only people who stay on the drugs are the ones who respond and did well. Well, yeah, let's just agree to agree that there's a population of patients that stay on drug and do well. I'd be happy if we went that far. But to say, hey, we're going to outlaw opioids for chronic pain in Oregon? I mean, here we have... We have data. Okay, outside of the respiratory depressant effect, I mentioned there's a lot of bothersome side effects of opioids, somnolence, dizziness, sedation, CNS side effects that we never focus on and to, to date we haven't had an answer for. If you were to go to the literature now, let me just do a quick time check. Um, if you were to go to the literature now, and look at some of the molecules or concepts that are in the pipeline for treating pain, you'll find a lot of different ones. I made a short, relatively short list of things that we could talk about here today that I could kind of rapid fire through. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about abuse deterrent opioids. 
I think we'd be remiss if we didn't agree that we need a change to the current paradigm of opioids, right? And that there are technologies, some that we have already, how many, 10 or 11 abuse deterrent drugs already approved, and a number in the pipeline, one or two of which I'll, I'll tell you about. Um, we need more drugs like partial agonists. I know Jeff Fuden is a big fan of buprenorphine. A lot of my colleagues are big fans of buprenorphine. It has a different respiratory depressant curve than pure opioids, right? You plateau. Unlike the pure opioids, if you look at the minute, minute ventilation curves, the more you give, the more you suppress respiration. But buprenorphine plateaus. We've been saying for a long time, maybe what CDC should have said is, you know what? Here's a simple philosophy. Why don't you prescribe in the order of scheduling? So try your non-opioids. If that doesn't work, go to a drug like tramadol. If that doesn't work, go to a drug like buprenorphine with this profile that it has before you get to the Schedule II, to the schedule two opioids. Uh, there's an emerging molecule I'll talk to you about called cipronopadol. I'm going to go through a couple of these really neat things. In case we don't have time, you may have heard about some alpha adrenergic agonists. Uh, one was presented here today. There's always NMDA receptor an, uh, antagonists being studied, some novel gabapentinoid-like drugs, novel NSAIDs. I'll show you one or two new delivery systems. The NGFs are coming. If we have time, we'll talk about glial cell modulators. I'd love to talk about cannabinoids, but there are lectures here to do that, and we need a lot of time. I'll be the first to admit, last year at this lecture, I was probably anti-cannabinoid. Having another full year of medicinal marijuana in New Jersey, I've changed my philosophy. When about 20% of my mostly cancer patients come back and say, I'm off my opioids, and life's a better place, and I'm sleeping, and I'm eating, and I'm not as nauseous anymore, you know what? God bless. Maybe I've been wrong. So my philosophy has always been, you cannot smoke marijuana in my pain clinic and get controlled substance pain medicines. I haven't really got my arms around completely saying you can do both, but I'm at least opening to the idea that perhaps there's a safety margin in cannabinoids for those responders so that I could lower their opioid doses and perhaps prevent some morbidity. So I'm open to the cannabinoids. I don't like the way it's done in this country. The first patient ever went to the dispensary for my practice more than a year ago, and I get a call from the dispensary. And they're like, uh, Doc, you didn't put how much marijuana you want for the patient. You got to tell us how much you want them to have. I'm like, well, how much do you recommend? I mean, I went to college, but I don't know, ounces, grams, pounds, or whatever, you know? And they're like, well, we can't tell you. So, well, give me some choices. He says, well, you can have one ounce, two ounce, or three ounces. I said to the guy, well, is, is that a lot? Is it a little? I don't really know. I said, all right, hold on. I went to the youngest girl in my office. <laughs> I said, Melissa, I need to order pot. Should I give the patient an ounce, two ounces, or three ounces? She says, what are you asking me for? You know? So I said to the guy, okay, give her an ounce and see what happens. I said, by the way, is it just one strain, one brand? He's like, no, no, we got tons of stuff. I'm like, how do you decide what the patient gets? He said, oh, we help them decide. Anybody hear this story from their patients? Right? They get, do you want to sleep? Do you want to be awake? Do you want to be hungry? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to, you know, it's, it's amazing that we have kids in a dispensary, sorry to call them that, making medicinal decisions. I much would have rather that we tested these the same way we test other pharmaceutical products. Okay, you get this concentration of indica versus sativa versus somebody remind me what the other one is with this percentage of cannabidiol and you take it three times a day in this capsule form and here's how it's been studied. 
but that's not what we have. We have, let's try to generate as much tax dollars as we can from this marijuana craze, sorry to say that, and uh, let's get it out to patients as, uh, as soon as possible. Um, we have some new topicals on the way as well. All right, abuse deterrent formulations. You have probably seen a number of these products. Many of them have physical chemical characteristics, barriers to crushing were one of the first, and even some of the subsequent was. Multiple layers of physical or chemical barriers. Some put an antagonist in with the agonist such that you're not exposed to it if you take it regularly, but if you crush it or tamper with the delivery system, you're exposed to the antagonist. And it will either, if you're opioid naive, limit your liking, or if you're opioid tolerant, put you into withdrawals. And I wrote with uh, Zulu Ruan one of the first case reports, maybe the first case report about somebody crushing and chewing Embedda, which is the morphine-naltrexone combination, and going to the ER with, uh, with flagrant, flagrant withdrawals. There's some cool delivery system. There's a hydrocodone prodrug that went to the FDA. Unfortunately, it didn't get labeling for abuse deterrence, but everybody knows what a prodrug is. It's not active until it gets into the intestine, right? What are you going to do with that prodrug? You're going to snort it? When they snorted it, it turns out there's so much, because it was hydrocodone acetaminophen, so much actual powder, most of it went into the GI tract, it looked exactly like oral. So they said to the FDA, look, there's no benefit to snorting it. It looks just like oral. And FDA said, well, they still like it a lot. So they didn't get the labeling for it, but it's a good thought, right? It's, why would you ever snort it? So their point was, hey, at least it stops that gateway, stops it from going to snorting. And that's been a big point of contention at, at FDA with trying to prove uh, abuse deterrence. Uh, aversive therapies, we've evaluated a number of these things. The first one that got turned down by the FDA was an oxycodone, which is actually on the market now, minus this one ingredient. It put in sodium lauryl sulfate. Anybody know what that's the ingredient in? Soap, shampoo, right? Gets in your eyes, it burns. Gets in your nose, it burns. When they gave it to the people to snort, it burned but it also had niacin in there. So they were trying to be the first ones to say, hey, we don't want you taking too many of these things. What happens when you take too much niacin? You get that flush, right? That hyperalgesia, that, it, that itchy, flushy sensation. The problem was a small, like 12 or 13% of normal people flushed at the regular dose. And the FDA said, look, we're not gonna let you give side effects to normal people just cause we're worried about someone else misusing the, misusing the drug. There are other aversive therapies in, uh, uh, in progress. I'll mention to you just one that's on the horizon, and you could uh, see posters here we've done in the last uh, probably two years and this year on uh, NKTR. This is a slow entry opioid. I'll introduce that to you in just a second. Oh, here it is now. So this is a new chemical entity. It's not a formulation. It's not an abuse deterrent formulation. It's just a property of this molecule that the kinetics of the way this molecule is, it gets into the, if anybody was at the constipation talks and we talked about pegylating molecules to prevent their entry through the blood-brain barrier. They don't get into the CNS. This is a little bit similar philosophy, but it gets into the CNS just really, really slowly. And what do your abusers want from an opioid? Really, really fast, not really, really slow. So I made the bad joke the same time uh, this time last year that if you want to be high on Friday, you got to take the drug on Tuesday, right? Which is not actually the case, but it sounds really good. So uh, here's a product where it entered into the blood, uh, in, in through the blood-brain barrier and into the CNS very slowly, and it reduced euphoria, somnolence, dizziness, sedation, drowsiness, compared to what we typically see with 
with other opioids. The other thing they did was likability, these uh, clinical abuse or human abuse potential, human abuse liability studies. And in one of the HAP studies, it showed significantly lower abuse potential than oxycodone. An earlier study, the abusers rated it comparable to placebo. It's a very slow onset. They don't get a rapid change in, in, uh, in plasma concentration. So this is a molecule that's in clinical trials right now, in clinical development, that you may see come out as a future opioid, whether it gets put in the abuse deterrent or other category. It's called a slow-entry slow entry opioid. We've also had some IR immediate release. You know, the majority of opioids that are abuse deterrent now are extended release. We've also had some IR opioids making progress. There are some right now in clinical trials, uh, some that I probably can't talk about, but there is one that's been FDA approved. It's called Roxybon. It's uh, equivalent to Oxy-IR with some abuse deterrent uh, 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 strategies from a physical chemical uh, standpoint. Uh, there are people testing aversive agents, and there's even a company in New Jersey that I saw some of the data. It's kind of hard to believe. They figured out some enzymatic way so that the more you take, the less you get. How neat is that? All right? There's some trouble with the system, but imagine if they're able to figure it out. You start to take one tablet, two tablets, three tablets, four tablets, five tablets, six tablets. Just brilliant science, right? Where there's a, where there's a need, the, the scientists are just, just remarkable with what they're coming up with. All right. Um, I might, uh, all right, let me take you through this quick. Everybody knows we've talked about three opioid receptor subtypes forever, mu, kappa, and delta. Well, it turns out in the last decade or two that they have discovered there's another opioid receptor that's not exactly like the opioid. It's opioid receptor-like. So they call it ORL1. You may have heard about this peptide that binds to it. Some people call it nociceptin or orphanin FQ. Um, it results in these complex, often opposing opioid receptor actions, but it's not exactly opposing to the opioid receptor. So this is a very complex phenomenon. Um, they've also found that this orphanin or NOP receptor inhibits N-type calcium channels. So maybe it has some GABAergic effects, some anti-NMD effect, maybe even a cannabinoid effect. So just so you know, there's a fourth type of opioid receptor that we have ligands or peptides that we could turn on or off this receptor. So there's a molecule called Cibranopidol. I think it's by the same makers of Tramadol and Tepentadol, a, a German uh, pharmaceutical company. And this particular product has a little bit of opioid and a little bit of NOQ, uh, uh, NOP in it. So if you remember, tramadol is a little opioid with SSRI effects. Tepentadol is a little bit of opioid with SNRI effects. And this is a little bit of opioid with nociceptin or NOP or ORL1 or anti-ORL1 effects. It's been studied in a number of pain models. Uh, and here's really where, what they're trying to exploit it showed an improved safety profile. So I said before, it opposes some of the actions of opioids. It's analgesic, but it opposed some of the respiratory depression. Not all, but some of the respiratory depression. So what industry is trying to do is give us molecules with an improved safety profile, um, like this one. Uh, here's one of the things that led them to, I don't want to spend too much on it, it was a rat study, but they showed that this drug didn't induce respiratory depression in doses that, that fentanyl was able to do. So they compared, it to, they compared it to fentanyl. So if this comes to market, you may see an analgesic with improved safety margin over 
characteristic, uh, characteristic opioids. All right. Here's one I don't know if you're going to see at this year's pain week, but they certainly had posters here last week. When you look at opioid receptor binding, it's actually a complex phenomenon as well. If you remember, it's a G-protein-coupled uh, G uh, receptor binding with downstream events that happen. And one of the things that they recognized is with a typical opioid, when it binds the G-protein receptor and it kicks off this cyclic AMP cascade, it activates this pathway called beta-arrestin. It's a downstream pathway. And they think that the beta-arrestin component of this complex receptor, act receptor activation might be responsible for things like respiratory depression, constipation, and tolerance. So what some very smart companies have done, based on some computer-generated scaffolding molecules. They go through 30, 40, 50 million different models on computers to figure out which ones might actually work. And you may have seen some posters on this molecule called olaceridine. The conventional opioid activates not just the G protein, but also the beta-arrestin pathway. The concept behind olaceridine, it's biased. It's called a biased ligand. It's biased only to the G protein portion of the opioid receptor and not this beta-arrestin receptor. Kind of gets a little deep, but just so you know, this is what's in clinical trials now, trying to bring us opioids with less respiratory depression, perhaps improved safety margin. Time check. Okay, we're doing okay. Sorry. Another fascinating molecule. I mentioned just briefly the kappa opioid receptor. And if you were to ask uh, Jeff Fuden or anybody uh, older than me about the kappa opioid receptor, they'll say, no, we never want to activate kappa. Kappa gives you hallucinations and dysphoria in the brain, uh, which is true. But there's a company that's come up with a peripherally acting kappa opioid receptor. And they figured out that in the periphery, kappa has some analgesic, some anti-inflammatory activities um, that uh, it turns out when they study them, was enough to, to make a difference, and I'll show you here in just a second. So they developed this kappa agonist that does not cross the blood-brain barrier. If it did, you'd get dysphoria and hallucinations. But like I said, it acts in the periphery. It even goes as far as the dorsal root ganglion before getting into the, into the central nervous system. Um, it showed that you can eliminate the mu opioid-related adverse effects. They did a human abuse liability study that showed almost no abuse potential. It doesn't get into the brain. What would they like about it? There was no liking. It's kind of weird. They compared it to Talwin, if any of you guys remember the, uh, the uh, old opioid uh, Talwin. Uh, interestingly enough, kappa in the periphery modulates the itch response. So there are things like uremic pruritus in our end-stage renal patients. This is being studied in as well. It sounds bothersome, but for those patients, it's really, really Really, really bothersome. So this molecule has been studied in a number of different pain models, acute, postoperative, chronic pain, as well as paritis. They're in clinical trials as well, have been communicating with FDA. And yet here's another example of an analogy that you and I might see in the next couple of years with little to no respiratory depression, peripherally acting only, that has analgesic benefits. All right, a couple minutes left. Topical analgesics. Have we only just scratched the surface? That's a bad pun. Um, there's been a lot of reviews about targeted, uh, about topical analgesics, some of the benefits. It targets therapy right to the site of pain, potential to reduce systemic adverse events. Anybody know when you apply topical diclofenac or topical lidocaine what the 
plasma levels are compared to taking it orally or, or IV, like 120th, 150th, 1 100th of the dose. You're not talking about half the dose or a third of the dose. 120th was one of the studies that, that, I, that I saw. So you really have the potential to reduce systemic adverse effects. The literature shows utility for acute and chronic musculoskeletal and neuropathic pain conditions, the most common ones we see out there, NSAIDs, lidocaine, capsaicin. Uh, if your office is anything like mine, you've probably been targeted, for lack of a better word, by compounding pharmacies that want to sell you these tubes of cream for 1000 or 2000 bucks that have everything under the sun. Baclofen, gabapentin, clonidine, ketamine, opioids, tequila. I mean, we'll put whatever you want in the, in the cream, right? Whatever you want in there. As long as you're paying for it, we'll put it in there. Do we know if it works? Who knows, right? Uh, and there's a challenge, by the way, when, in studying multiple drugs. Studying a combination product is really hard. Studying something with three drugs is, is near impossible to ferret out. And you need super large numbers of, uh, of subjects. All right. New advances in formulations to improve technology. Did anybody get in their welcome packet or under the door this new lidocaine patch? Did it go to everybody? Anybody open it and try it on? Um, so uh, there's a new lidocaine topical system. For the last what, 15, 20 years, we've had 5% lidocaine patches. That was Endo's original lidoderm product. I write that on an everyday basis. Now that it's 4% and over-the-counter and not covered by a lot of insurance companies, a lot of times I, I will tell patients to go over-the-counter, but if we can get it, we prescribe it. For off-label, I should say that now, right? What's the label for lidocaine patch? Post-herpetic neuralgia. But I started using this years and years ago for musculoskeletal and neuropathic and, uh, and, and uh, chemo and things like that. So there's a new lidocaine topical system. If you've ever put the lidoderm patch on, it goes on wet and goopy, that's a hydrogel patch. This particular patch is an anhydrous system, a lot less, to, a little to no water. The studies, if you go and look at the posters here, of which I'm on, by the way, show superior adhesion. The lidoderm patch has 700 milligrams of lidocaine to deliver 5%. This patch delivers the same amount of lidocaine with 36 milligrams of lidocaine. They improve the efficiency of delivery. It's thinner, more pliable. Um, uh, but its only indication right now, just so we're all clear, is pain associated with PHN. I took this picture of a patient because this is what happens with most of the patches that we have people wear. They crater, they bubble, they peel at the sides, they fall off. Um, this is that patch on my hand. In between the nooks and crannies, the adhesion is pretty good. Peeling it off didn't hurt, didn't take my skin with it, came off fairly readily. Uh, so I think you're going to see new uh, delivery systems, new formulations. Imagine if we had a diclofenac patch that sticks like this. I tried to use Flector for years and years, and I kept going back to it. It didn't stay on. Flector, especially think about where do they want it, curved surfaces and things. It, the, the, the Flector patch just didn't adhere. So talking of Flector, it's a 1.3% diclofenac epolamine. You notice there's different salts in the formulations. Voltaren gel, diclofenac sodium. Pensed is diclofenac sodium. It's a, it's a topical solution. Similar to the lidocaine product that I just showed you, there's new formulations for diclofenac coming as well, including a spray film technology. You don't even have to put on a patch. It's a bunch of polymers that dry into a, almost looks like a film, like a spray-on patch. So we're going to have new delivery systems for non-opioid molecules. All right. Some of you may have seen this. Rick Rauch and Steve Cohn published on this a couple of years ago. This device was just FDA approved in the last week to 10 days. 
Somebody asked me to talk about stimulation last year, and I'm not so savvy with all the Nevro and the new, uh, I don't use all the different, uh, different stim devices, but this one's kind of cool. This looked at peripheral nerve stimulation for patients with post-amputation pain in the leg. I'll show you a picture of it in just a second. This was a small trial, but what they showed is the, if you responded to this, which were the majority of people in the trial, even after they took the lead out, they got weeks to months of extended duration of analgesia. You stimulate them for a couple of weeks, and you get a couple of months worth of analgesia. This is the device just in the last week or two approved. It's called the Sprint by a company, SPR. They have one and two leads. It's a peripheral nerve stimulation device indicated to leave in up to 60 days, back or legs, both acute and chronic pain. Um, and you wear this generator, which is Bluetooth, that the patient can control uh, the settings. Here's a picture of what it looks like. They're using this for multiple applications, chronic shoulder pain. There's two studies ongoing, chronic low back pain. They presented data at the uh, Neuromodulation Society meeting, chronic amputation pain I told you about. They're talking about failed knee arthroplasty, acute and chronic pain, talking about low back pain. So another non-opioid strategy that not only might you see is already FDA approved, and you will see your local uh, interventionalist doing, doing things like that. All right. Two minutes and 21 seconds. Oh, no, eight minutes, nine minutes. Uh, nerve growth factor. You hopefully have read about this in some of the pain journals. I think Jeff and I are planning a review article on this for practical pain management because this is a really exciting, I mean, I've talked about a lot of potential things and opioids and non-opioids, but this is, to me, a really exciting breakthrough discovery in the world of pain, potentially for both nociceptive and neuropathic. Again, the pathophysiology of pain is very complex. We know that nerve growth factor plays a role in inflammation, angiogenesis. <clears throat> it's clearly been shown in acute and chronic pain models. It sensitizes nociceptors, and therefore, if we could block NGF, we might be able to block pain signaling. And you probably have read that the majority of these clinical trials now are in OA patients. The FDA actually halted the trials to go over some safety data, and the trials have have uh, resumed. Um, if you dig down into the science, you're going to hear people talk about track A inhibitors, which binds the uh, uh, NGF molecule. You may have heard about mutations in NGF or track A causing congenital insensitivity to pain. You don't meet too many of these people because they don't live long lives. They can't feel any pain, right? And pain is a protective, a protective mechanism. Uh, I'm not going to go through the, the science here, but Back to one of my earliest slides, that pain is really an inflammatory response, and blunting track A or blocking uh, nerve growth factor really can turn off the pain signaling message. We're going to have these drugs. There's two, three of them uh, very close uh, in the pipeline. They're almost here. i uh, skip over that. All right. I'll tell you about another class of drug. I learned about this as, a, as an anesthesia resident well more than 20 or 25 years ago, that the sodium channel is kind of the, I think I put a picture here, the surge protector, we used to call it. The sodium channel is the surge protector. If you could stop that surge of sodium, remember, that's responsible for the action potentials, that you could turn off seizures and pain and other neurological phenomena. So there's nine different sodium channels that are known. The one they've been talking about for the longest time, for 25 years, is 1.7. Turns out that 1.8 has gotten some recent attention, and perhaps even 1.9 to be a pain modulator. 
These are far off, even though they've been in testing for a long time. I don't know of any of them that are, that are really close. Um, but they're used as anesthetics, antiarrhythmics, analgesics, and anticonvulsants. Obviously, anything that could block nerve fibers. So in clinical trials right now, uh, a lot of animal data and some human data are these NAV uh, sodium channel inhibitors, again, to try to stop the depolarization that happens uh, leading, to, leading to action potentials. If we had this, I, I look at this like a super gabapentin almost, right? No opioid-related side effects, blunt pain uh, processing, et cetera. In the last couple of minutes, and we're not going get, to get to cannabinoids, I, I apologize, but I don't, have really, I don't really have much to say about cannabinoids. If you look at the pain studies, they show efficacy about that. There's a meta-analysis. The efficacy of, of marijuana to treat pain is about that of Tylenol with codeine. But when you start to see patients, I think if you can select the patients who are responders, just like opioids, we have to figure out which are the patients who are going to respond. You know what I ask my patients when they ask about pot? I'm like, you ever smoke pot? And they said, they you say yes or no. And if they say yes, I'm like, how'd you like it? They say, I loved it. And I say, well, you're probably going to do well on medicinal marijuana. I mean, you know, what do you want me to tell you? If you've never tried it before, it's worth a try. We just got, to show you how weird our country is, I mean, every state is different. New York couldn't do the flower. You couldn't do the, the plant. You had to do edibles. And I think that changed. New Jersey, you could only do the flower. So when patients would come to the office, I'd start asking them, very curious, about the, oh, here, doc, have a look. It looks like a bag of pot, right? That's what they get at the dispensary is pot. I mean, I thought it would be something different, but that's what they got. All right. Um, if any of you are interested in this, and I think there's a lot behind chronic pain with glial cells. When we were young and went to high school and college science class, we learned that glial cells and were just these senescent cells in the CNS. They appear to just hang around. They don't do very much. Yeah, when you study healthy brains, that's what they do, right? Picture if you went, uh, you know, you look at the security guard just lined up at the gate. If you look at them all day long, they're not doing anything. Well, there's not a problem. But if there's a problem, then you see them in, in action. That's what the glial cells are like. They modulate excitatory and, and uh, inhibitory uh, transmission throughout the nervous system. And I was going to say, as we run out of time, Linda Watkins, I hate to toot her horn, did a lecture here a couple of years ago, and I've seen her at AAPM. I just saw her at the Florida Pain Society meeting, where she looked at using glial cell inhibitors. And the last data she presented was even more impressive than the first data. The first data that I saw a couple of years ago, she showed a model of MS, multiple sclerosis, in mice, because we can induce it in mice. And she showed a control group and the group that they gave this glial cell inhibitor to. And she videotaped them over time. And first they stop moving their head so much, then they stop moving their front paws, then they stop moving their hind paws, then they don't flick their tail, then they die. And in the mice that got these glial cell modulators, no MS. I said, that's unbelievable. She has basically halted diabetic neuropathy. She showed just a couple of weeks ago at the Florida Pain Society meeting where I attended and, and lectured that they took dogs who were going to be sacrificed because of their advanced osteoarthritis of the hips. They couldn't move anymore. They were basically just cripples. And she gave them one of her investigational drugs, and the next thing you know, they videotaped the dogs, of course, running around. The majority of the dogs had significant improvement in pain. Didn't fix their joint destruction, but it improved their pain enough to make the dogs more active. A very exciting area of pain research. Again, brings me back to the point that pain is an inflammatory 
response and anything we could do, even if it's neuroinflammation, which is where the glial cell is active, anything we could do, this could just make your head spin, it's so, so complex, but anything we could do to turn down the, the activation process. And there's a number of these uh, ligands that are, uh, that are in, um, in development right now. For time's sake, I'm going to stop there. I will open the floor if there's any pressing questions. I promise I'll hang around for a couple of minutes. Uh, please, if you guys have any ideas, uh, and we're open to industry ideas as well. If you're from industry, that's fine. We want everybody to write in. We want to really get the word out there about what's happening in pain. You have a new drug in development, we want to know. You have a great case report, we want to know. You have a topic that you want to see written about, but you're not a writer. Let us know. We'll have somebody help you. Thank you guys so much for attending. Have a great meeting.